Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to the complex, messy world of the women who flew for Hitler. Wow, that's quite different. So if we look at previous episodes, we've looked at Ricarda Moro-Tate, the first woman to fly a plane around the world, and Johnny Smythe, he was our RAF pilot and war hero. And let's not forget Peter Stevens, we can't forget him. But he was a German who flew against Hitler. Yeah, I mean, I I said it was complex and messy, these Mm. women's stories like the women themselves, are sometimes troubled and sometimes troubling. Mm. But I can guarantee that their stories will open your eyes. They surely open mine. Open your ears too about what we mean when we talk about heroes and villains, good and evil, my country right or wrong. Mm. And I suppose this does take us back to trapped history and James Baldwin saying people are trapped in history. Yeah, yeah. And by that, he meant we're often imprisoned by the stories that our countries and societies tell us about ourselves. Yeah. And, and going back to these women pilots, these test pilots, and it's a deliberately provocative line, the women who flew for Hitler. We're going to be looking at those trapped in history stories, those big histories about who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad, uh, who's written the history. But we'll also be looking at those small personal histories. Remember, James Baldwin said people are trapped in history, but he also said, and history is trapped in them. Mm. So in this episode, we'll also be exploring the stories which people tell themselves to convince themselves that they're good, that they're right, that they're on on the, the right side of history. So who are these women who flew for Hitler then? Their names are Melitta von Stauffenberg and Hannah Reich. As young women, they're both mesmerised by the power and the romance of flight. This is the age of Amelia Earhart and uh, Amy Johnson. And this is something that Melita says. Flying exerted an irresistible magic on me. I was dominated all along by the longing for freedom. So Melita is uh, a bit older and first flies in 1920. She's soon one of the few women to get an engineering degree with aeronautical engineering degree, not just in Germany, anywhere. Wow, that's really impressive. And I think she's, it feels as if she's cut from sort of the new woman mould of the 1920s. She's got a bob haircut. She smokes fags, rides a motorbike, and then moves from engineering into flying proper, gets her licence in 1929, works at the German Research Institute for Aeronautics. She does seem very modern in her external appearances. And this is Hannah. The longing grew with every bird I saw go flying across the azure summer sky, with every cloud that sailed past on the wind, till it turned into a deep, insistent homesickness, a yearning that went with me everywhere and could never be stilled. The thing that I take away from thinking about Hannah at this time is that, well, firstly, she's younger. And I think that's an important factor when we're talking about the place she's growing up in and what makes her tick. Sounds as if she has a rather sort of austere, proper, middle-class upbringing, but like Melita, is captivated by the idea of flight. And so as soon as she can, she 
clambers behind the steering column, I think it's a steering column, of a glider. This is 1930, 1931. Since she's younger and so in a way it feels as if she's a bit later to the party than Melita, but she's the one whose name is soon up in lights. Just a few months after first flying, she breaks the world record for women's glider endurance. So, uh, by mistake almost, she's up there for five or more hours. And it seems that her stars just sort of align in 1933. She soars higher than any glider had ever done before. She's a stunt performer on screen. She essentially becomes this sort of international ambassador for German flight. Okay, but we know what's coming next. Hitler. Yeah, and uh, we've heard quite a bit about the birth of the Nazis when we featured Emmy Noether, the groundbreaking German-Jewish mathematician. If you haven't yet listened to that episode on her yet, do look out for it. The thing I think that we need to carry with us into the rest of this episode is this. In 1918, Germany loses the First World War. Two million young men are killed on the battlefields. The country is humiliated, shamed, grief-stricken, broken. Uh, Melita is 16, 17. Hannah's only seven or eight years old, and they grow up in this world. And really, all it takes then is for someone to come along who promises to wipe the slate clean, someone who says they'll restore national pride and national dignity by any means necessary, and you find yourself in the situation that Germany finds itself in the early 1930s. And I suppose that's key to understanding how and why so many Germans, young people like Hannah in particular, were prepared to listen to Hitler. He seemed to offer national renewal and national pride. With Emmy's story, we saw that many Germans took on a sense of denial. They were putting their fingers in the ears. This bad stuff won't really happen. It's just for the diehards. And then when you start making excuses, you're already on that path and you end up turning a blind eye to the horrors. It's that poem by Martin Niemöller, a German pastor who'd supported Hitler before he saw what it really meant. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out, because I was no socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out, because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. And I think on that note, you and I, Carla, we have reached peak knowledge um, here. So we'd better really bring in our, our guest today, Claire Mully, the author of the quite brilliant, quite spectacular, The Women Who Flew for Hitler. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Nice to meet you, Claire. Thank you. Now, so first things first, you've written some absolutely brilliant uh, history books, The Spy Who Loved, The Women Who Saved the Children, some great biographies about important, fascinating and complex and compelling women. The thing that is different about The Women Who Flew for Hitler is it's a dual biography. Which are, which are sort of, I suppose, relatively rare in, in, the, in the world of historical biography. And it's really just interesting to understand why a dual biography felt as, as the natural way to go for you. I mean, how did the format appeal to tell uh, Melita and Hannah's stories? I came at it sideways. I was originally I was thinking about writing about one of the women who served in the ATA, the British Air Transport Auxiliary. And one of my other heroines is Constance Babington Smith 
who uh, became famous, uh, legendary really. Um, she's accredited with finding the first V1, a little cross on an aerial photograph of Penamunda, uh, which was the proving ground, the testing ground for the Luftwaffe, for their uh, vengeance weapons in particular. And something I thought fascinating about that was there is um, Constance Babington-Smith looking through her stereoscope to make this photograph rise up into 3D. And not only are there little crosses of the aircraft there and scorch marks from rockets, but there's dots all over the airfield. And these are the tops of the heads of the pilots. And one of those pilots was Hannah Reich. So originally I thought maybe I'll do a book about two women on different sides of the war uh, on different sides of the lens. In fact, it's a Leica lens, a German lens that uh, Constant Babington-Smith said she, you know, she conscripted the enemy to help with her work. But then I got more into that story and I realised that there wasn't just one female test pilot for the Third Reich. There was another one and her story was even more remarkable. And for me, it was the contrast. It's the space between them that they carved up between them. I mean, a large part of this is about the difference between them and what that tells us about this point in history. Yeah, I think for Melitta, it's all about freedom. She often talks about things like the borderless sea of the sky. She's also very much anchored in these old traditional Junker values of Germany as well. So she loves the poets and she'll talk about the composers of Germany. She's very much part of that heritage, that rich cultural heritage of Germany. Whereas for Hannah, by contrast, it's very much about conquest. You know, for her, these are new territories to be conquered, for her to take control of as the Germans move forward in history. It's much more about power, modernity, and all of those values that, that the Nazis, of course, chose very much to associate themselves with flight because it held those sorts of images. It kind of sums up the difference between them, really. So, Claire, we've got uh, Melitta and Hannah in cockpits. That's where we, where we are. We know they can fly. Melitta's working at DVL, the German Research Institute for Aeronautics. Uh, Hannah is a record breaker. All's going swimmingly well. And then 1933, Hitler comes to power. So what does that mean? I mean, if anything, for, for, for these two women? I mean, I mean, it means an awful lot because um, Hitler, I mean, he took his first flight the year after Melitta. And he, I mean, he was the first real international political leader to see the value of flight as a political tool. And so he did aerial leaflet drops around Germany. He went, he was the first politician to do a hustings by flight around his country. It's called the, the German flight. Um, and so he was very keen. He would use a Zeppelin and tie up outside Berlin. And every time there was another thousand members of the Nazi party, he would update the figure on the side of the Zeppelin. So he was associating very deliberately his, uh, his party with those values we associate with flight, which are power modernity, a sense of pioneering nature, um, force, freedom, all of those things. And Hannah in particular seems to fit this mould. She has, you know, blonde hair and blue eyes. And, you know, she sees the Nazi party, she sees brass bands and bunting and, you know, jobs coming back and fighting the communist threat or whatever she believes that to be. And so she's really keen to see her career begins to rise. You know, she stretches her wings as the party does and rises with them. Whereas Melitta has a very different perspective. You know, she sees um, liberals and um, Protestant pastors being taken away, like Niemöller, you know, being taken away, not just communists, not just aggressive agitators. She sees the crime on the side of the state as much as the threat elsewhere. And so she has a very different perspective on this regime and she chooses to remain as distant as she can. Yeah. 
Do you think you could just sort of fill us in just a bit on on the sort of stuff that they're doing in in the 30s and into the war? I gather that Melita is more dealing with dive bombing and Stukas and, and Melita's work with the Stukas is absolutely extraordinary. So she is, as I said, she's an aeronautical engineer. Very rare for a woman, anyhow. And so she will spend her days at the drafting table, and she develops um, the dive sites and the dive breaks for the Stuka dive bombers. Now these these machines horrendous things i mean they are synonymous with the blitzkrieg they're the ones that come screaming down at you know near vertical 80 degrees um towards the earth and they fitted sirens onto the back wheels and onto some of the wings so they would scream down terrorizing the people below and so she is working on those and then she doesn't just do the development work she insists on doing the testing as well and and the engineers were really you know if they were good they were considered too valuable to do that work but she insisted she said nobody else could feel the plane like her could sense the little tweaks that she was doing she needed to experience it herself so she would do these dive test nose dives and i mean they're they're absolutely terrifying you are going at 350 miles an hour towards almost straight towards the ground and then just before you get there you have to and as you do that, you know, your blood is being forced up into your head. She would red out where your sight goes red because your blood is forced up into your eyes. And then as she pulls on the stick to lift the nose and, and pull out just before she hits, um, you can black out because th- this is the effect of the G-force. And so she she did sometimes lose consciousness but managed to regain it in time. So that's Melita. And, and Hannah, she's doing this stuff about troop carrying yeah so hannah starts off the war she is she's not an aeronautical engineer she's a pilot she's a brilliant pilot they both are um so she starts off the war she's um, one of the first things she tests is called a gigant which means giant which was a massive glider it was able to take 100 fully armed men or, or even a tank inside it and then the front would open like this and it would kind of this tank would roll out into action then she helps develop um things like the um one of the big defences that Britain and had against the bombing raids were the barrage balloons. And these balloons are not sort of flying freely up there. They're tethered by very, well, quite thin, but very strong steel cables. And the idea is that if you're flying at speed, particularly at night when most of the raids took place, you don't see them and they can shear through, slice through a wing off a plane and send you spiralling down. And a German engineer developed things like a blade that would sit on the front of the wing and Hannah was given the job to test if this would work and slice through the cable to enable the bomber to keep going. And um, that was the first time that was tested. And she she wrote about it. She said she was a little distracted because it was so beautiful to see the sun glinting on the barrage balloon, which is not how I would have been thinking at that moment. Oh. And, and then, then she flew, you know, put her head down and flew directly into it. And it did, it actually worked. It sliced through the cable. Um, she felt the jolt, but she didn't realise, none of them did, that the end of the cable whipped up and it smashed through the propeller, sending shards of metal through the cockpit, smashing the cockpit, narrowly missing her head, but going into one of her engines. And they just, they saw this plane go down. They waited for the column of smoke, you know, the big explosion. But it didn't happen because she was a brilliant pilot. She managed a perfect forced landing. Presumably, there were hardly any other female test pilots. Were they the only two that we know of? They are the only two female test pilots. I mean, there are other female pilots in Germany. Um, and towards the end of the war, when they really had to, they did enrol women also to act as ferry pilots, like the British ATA. So, you know, transporting aircraft from the factories to the field where they were needed. And do we know how they were viewed by their male colleagues? Were they, were they treated differently or were they well, of undermined? Course they were. Of course they were, I'm completely sure. undermined. I mean, yeah. they weren't actually allowed to be in the Luftwaffe anyhow. 
Um, so they are civilians seconded into the Luftwaffe. They were told they weren't allowed to wear Luftwaffe uniform because apparently their profiles would sully the line on parade. Um, I'm not sure quite what that means. I think possibly guess. Um, yeah, and they were completely ridiculed early on. You know, there was a lot of how could a woman possibly do this? Of course, they were um, very much belittled. But they were, you know, if the women hadn't been extremely competent, if their skills weren't, you know, virtually unique in how good they were, the Germans would never have used them, but they needed them. Mm. So how do Hannah and Melita feel themselves about being female pilots? Did they ever go on the record? No, not really. The only thing we have is um, Melita always tried to avoid doing any publicity for the regime. But eventually, um, she runs out of excuses. Her husband's ill, or she, it looks like if she leaves Berlin, she'll be afraid, or, you know. And eventually, she is forced to go to Sweden and give a talk. And at one point, she says, For us, flying has never been a matter of causing a sensation or even emancipation. We woman pilots are not suffragettes. She very much, she wanted to wear the trousers because it was sensible in the cockpit. It doesn't ride up your legs when you're doing these flights. You know, she's telling the men exactly what to do. But then at the end of the day, she will go home. She puts her pinny on and she cooks dinner for her husband, who earns a fraction of what she does. He was an academic. Um, but she's there typing out his reports for him. So she's, she's not a feminist in that regard, whereas Hannah, in a sense, is certainly more self-assertive. But at the same time, there was an account, I interviewed a former Luftwaffe pilot who remembered meeting her in the Adlon Hotel towards the middle of the war. And they were both going to meet different generals from the regime. And Hannah asked him what he was doing and he told her. And she was absolutely appalled because one of the buttons on his uniform was hanging slightly off. And so she reached into her bag, he told me, and pulled out a needle and thread. It seems she always carried a needle thread with her. And she insisted on sewing it back on for him there and then, you know, because this is very much the woman's role. So she was ready for that as well. You know, she's prepared. They're very much prepared to play the woman's role as well. That wasn't the fight they were having. The, the elephant in the room, I mean, there are quite a few elephants in this room, I suppose, is that uh, however pioneering they are, however brave they are, Hannah and Melita are testing and perfecting weapons for the Nazi war machine. Yes, they're both complicit with yeah. that regime, yeah. that criminal regime. There's a quote here um, from a, a German soldier, just in terms of Melita, you know, improving the capabilities of Stuka dive bombers, which as, you know, are, are used to devastating effect. I mean, in the Spanish Civil War, but then obviously, as you say, in, in France and Poland and, and uh, uh, across the, the, the rest of Europe. And this German soldier wrote uh, during the Battle of France, he said, Stukas have been at work here. They attack in a nosedive, emitting a screeching siren as they descend. The effect on morale is said to be devastating. And I think the same probably goes for Hannah as well with the glider technology, the Messerschmitt. And I would actually say that Melita's work is, ironically, perhaps more valuable to the regime than Hannah's mm. um, because she isn't just doing the test work. She is actually doing the engineering as well. And she ends up being given a complete aeronautical institute under her command with significant funds, vehicles, personnel. She reports directly to Goering, the Minister of Aviation. So the question and the difficulty today, nowadays, is how, I mean, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with, with the fact that they're enabling the Nazi conquest of, of Europe and all that that entails? You know, are, are we in the black and white world of goodies and baddies or how, how do we deal with the complexities of that today? When I wrote this book, some people said to me, isn't it fantastic you've written a book about good Nazis? And I haven't because they weren't good Nazis. 
I think it's very reductive to talk about people in these very cartoon-like terms. I mean, here we have two very different women who both served this criminal regime. Just sort of going back to the test pilot bit and about how one tries to get beyond sort of two-dimensional cartoonish sort of stereotypes. There are test pilots in Britain who are also testing bombers to wreak havoc and death on civilian populations. I mean, you've, you've got yes, Eric Yes, but I don't, think it's, um, I don't think you can equate the two. The bombing campaign is very controversial. And I still don't think there is an equal comparison to be made by people who are test pilots like Eric Brown for the Allied cause and those who are test pilots for the criminal regime of Nazi Germany. There is not an equivalence to be had there. So yes, it's really important that we remember that both of these women were actively benefiting that criminal regime. They're both culpable. And yet, to some extent, they made extremely, they had very different motivations and made very different choices, which led to them really ending their lives on opposite sides of the war, opposite sides of that regime. At the start of the war, I mean, they're both deeply patriotic and they want to support their country at a time of war. And you must remember, they're living under these very perverting conditions of dictatorship and then war. But as things develop, by the time we get to 1944, it's both of them make decisions to for, to volunteer for very key roles to change the outcome of the war. So Hannah puts her hand up and volunteers. She proposes, actually, the concept of having manned versions of the V1. So the V1 is what we know in Britain as the doodlebug. The idea is that instead of them just uh, being released, they would be piloted. I think if anyone else had proposed it, they would have been for the chop because Hitler thought it was, you know, he didn't like the whole kamikaze concept. He thought it was defeatist. Um, but she managed to persuade him by haranguing him, really, that this is something that should be she should be allowed to prepare and then she would wait for him to give the order and they were never actually put into action. Um, Melitta has taken a very different approach. So Melissa learned something in 1937 when the Nuremberg Laws came in, which were the laws that enshrined Nazi racial prejudice into policy. It was discovered that her, she and her family were considered by the regime, at least, to be Jewish. She had been brought up as a Protestant. She didn't consider herself in any way to be Jewish, but she certainly had Jewish heritage. At that point, she applied for something called equal to Aryan status, which... 30,000 or something people applied for and only about 300 got. It was only for those people that were really considered valuable to the regime. Um, but when it was offered to her because they needed her, she actually refused to accept it unless it was given to her family. So she is working in effect to protect her family. And that's why she's doing all those nosedives. You know, if you did uh, if you did two nosedives in a day, if you're a test pilot, you did one in the morning, they changed something and you went in the afternoon, that's not considered brave. That's considered heroic. It's so dangerous. But Melissa would do 15 tests in a day. She did over 2,000 during the course of the war. Nobody comes anywhere near her because she is deliberately making herself uniquely valuable. She is superhuman and nobody can replace her. She's needed. So then she uses that to protect her family. So she's, in a way, working under duress. Yeah. Now, at that point, she didn't really know what was happening in the East. But at some point, she found out. And at which point, she joined the domestic German resistance. And so Melitta, in 1944, in the summer of 44, while Hannah is proposing the idea and getting involved in the development of manned V1 doodlebugs, Melitta is getting involved with the July 1944 Stauffenberg bomb plot to assassinate Hitler. 
Her name is Melita von Stauffenberg. She's married to Alexander von Stauffenberg, the elder brother of Klaus. She had offered to fly Klaus von Stauffenberg to the wolf's lair on his mission to put his briefcase with the bomb to assassinate Hitler. But unfortunately, she couldn't get the right aircraft available that week. And so in the end, a Luftwaffe adjutant took him. But she is right there. And she had a number of roles within that. She was providing a safe place for the conspirators to meet. One of the benefits she had as a pilot was that she could have a yacht on the Vonsee, the lake in Berlin. And if you are on a yacht on the middle of the lake, nobody's going to overhear your plotting. So she was providing that throughout her diary. They're constantly meeting in the weeks, days and the night before. Um, So she's clearly at the heart of this plot. But actually, it's been written out of the history, really. I've never seen her name in the books. So it isn't as simple as she shares the family name because she marries Klaus's brother, Alexander. It's that she has not only knowledge of what they are planning to do, but is involved in it. She's going to be their their getaway pilot, as it were. Yeah, she's really at the heart of the von Stauffenberg Valkyrie bomb plot. So we have the July 1944 plot. Hitler isn't killed. And can you tell us just uh, a bit about the aftermath? I know loads well, of people are arrested and lots of I'll people are I'll do it very executed. briefly. Yeah, I mean, over 2,000 people were arrested. And of course, she's got the Stauffenberg name um, and militia herself is arrested. And I thought that would be the end of her story. But in fact, incredibly, she talks her way out of prison. And what she does afterwards, but I don't think I should give it all away. But what she does afterwards is a story in itself quite remarkable. <laughs> oh, that's very. I love very that she clever. talked her way out of prison. Like, I'm intrigued. How did she do that? <laughs> and Hannah, where you, you've talked about Hannah living after the war. What what is the end game for Hannah during the war? She has a relationship with a man called Robert Ritter von Grime, and after Goering betrays Hitler, or Hitler believes he is betrayed by him, he decides to appoint Ritter von Grime as the new head of the Luftwaffe. I mean, the Luftwaffe virtually doesn't exist at this point. And so he is called in Berlin to receive last orders. And um, Hannah stows away in the fuselage of his aircraft. They go into Berlin surrounded by the Red Army. You know, bullets that are designed to pierce armour go through the fuselage of the plane, go through von Grime's leg. He sleeps, stoops unconscious from blood loss. And she goes over his shoulder and lands the plane on the you know main east-west access in Berlin. She drags von Grime out, flags down a truck, and they get to the bunker. And Hitler actually says, oh, at last, there is some honour and duty left in this country. Um, but then he actually changes her mind. and She begs him to let her stay with him. But um, in the end, she's sent out with last orders and gets out again, extraordinarily under fire, manages to get out of Berlin. Yeah, so so that's what she's most famous for. And it is, I mean, it's a, it's a real daring do sort of story, but it's probably not the most important thing she did. And knowing everything you do about these two women, how do you feel about them? I don't think you have to admire a subject to think it's important to write a book about them. I mean, a lot of the time I get asked, why would you write about Nazi women? And I don't know if the emphasis is the Nazi or the women, really, because, you know, we love to celebrate these great, strong women who were heroes. And I've written about those women as well in my previous books. But I think it's really important to remember that you can be a brilliant pilot. You can be a powerful woman against defying the odds in an incredibly chauvinistic masculine society. You can admire those things within them. And yet you can also completely loathe, you know, the values of some of these people and think it's still important to bring those to light. History is as complicated as life is complicated today. It just shows the absolute hypocrisy of a regime that said, you know, there's only one place for women, which is Kirsha Kinder, and there is no place for Jews at all. 
And yet when it suited their purposes, they gave their highest honours, the Iron Cross, to two women in what they considered to be the very masculine world of flight, one of whom they themselves defined as Jewish. We ask all of our guests, Claire, to nominate someone for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone who we haven't heard of but really should have. Who would be your nominee? I am working on a book at the moment of the most extraordinary woman. I've completely fallen in love with her, actually, this this woman. Poland was the first country invaded by Nazi Germany. And they put up, actually, a very good fight for the first couple of weeks. But on the 17th of September, 17 days after Nazi Germany invaded from the West, the Soviet Union invaded from the East, and they had to face war on two fronts, um, which was beyond their capacity. And so they decided to move their government out. The government went to Paris and then went to London and they withdrew as many forces as they could to rejoin the Allied fight. And so the Poles have this huge army that comes out. They come to through Romania largely, they come to France, they serve in the Battle of France, and then they come back through Dunkirk and through other ways and they come to Britain. They're all stuck up in Scotland to defend the coast out there. And these are the most experienced Allied combatants of the war. This is still during the phony war for for Britain. You know, they haven't served, whereas the Poles have had two good shots at it already. And they take the cream of their forces and they make them into the Polish Special Force paramilitary. The idea is that they can drop behind enemy lines, which they do into many countries, France, Yugoslavia, but mainly back to Poland. And they, about 2,000 of them volunteered for this. They went through extremely rigorous training, but it was kept very quiet. Nobody knew about it. And this is untold story about this special force. 316 of them actually were parachuted back behind enemy lines. And there was just one woman among them. They were called the Silent and Unseen. There was one silent and unseen woman. Her name was Elspieta Zvatska, but her code name was Zoe. So my next book is Agent Zoe, and that's who everyone should know about. Sounds fascinating. Thank you very much. (laughs) Wow, that is some some story, isn't it, Carla? Mm. What's your take on it? I guess I can understand how if you're a young person in Germany and then along comes this supposed saviour who seems to have the answers to everything, I could see where that could be seductive. Mm. So I suppose while obviously, you know, loathing the the Nazi regime, I can understand as a young person like Hannah, for example, why you might be attracted to that and feel inspired by it initially. Mm. Mm. We saw a, a, a different but in some ways quite similar grey nuanced world in one of our first episodes of Trapped History, the the story of Peter Stevens. Mm. Which is that that just People do things and they're not necessarily good. They're not necessarily doing the right things all the time. Mm. And yeah, as you say, I mean, they're but for the grace of God. Mm, Absolutely. People are nuanced and nobody is all good or all bad. And what I would really like to know a bit more about is Melita. So obviously she was involved in this, this plot to kill Hitler and Claire mentioned she amazingly managed to talk her way out of prison. But I'd love to know, you know what did happen next to her. Without giving too much of the story of the women who flew for Hitler away, I think it's only right and fair to say Melita got out of prison. I think she spent six weeks in, in prison. As, as far as I can tell, she talked herself out of prison because, as Claire said, she had made herself so indispensable to the Nazi war effort. And this was in the the end game of the war, really. 
as a result of the failure of the July 44 bomb plot, nearly all of Melissa's family are imprisoned. And what she then does for the last few weeks of her life is that she's trying to track down and trying to trace her family members. And she is literally flying around, following her family from prison camp to prison camp across Eastern Europe, every now and then being able to land and meet up with them and give them some food and some supplies. But on the 8th of April, 1945, her luck runs out and Melita is shot down by an American fighter pilot. And that's the end of Melissa's story. Hannah, as, as I think Claire mentioned, she survives. She lives for another 35 years. Does she have children? No, none of them have children. And Hannah, in some ways, rehabilitates herself. She continues flying gliders. She continues taking part in international glider competitions. She still sets world records. But also, as Claire said, she was an unabashed, unashamed Nazi mm. until the day she died. And I think we're, we're again back into the world that Claire talked about when she said history is as complicated as life is today. And again, back to what you were saying earlier, Carla, that nothing is black and white. Nothing is easy. No one mm. is good and no one is bad. No one is a hero. No one is a villain all the time. Mm. And how we come to grips with that is hopefully one of the reasons why we do Trapped History. Absolutely. So what's up next, Oswin? Well, this isn't just a person. I know that most of our Trapped History stories are about individuals. This is about a whole movement. It's the Newsies of 1899. It's the boys and girls of New York who took on the most powerful men in America. Boys and girls, literally children. Absolutely, literally children. They're newspaper sellers and they take on William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. Wow, they sound amazing. Definitely keen to hear about them. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee. Our music is by Pavlo Buterin, and you've also heard the voices of Thomas Allison, Usha Klee, and Nadine Most. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please give us a rating. It really helps. And visit trappedhistory.com, where you can hear bonus episodes and send us your own Hall of Fame nominations. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Mm-hmm.